Welcome back to the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. I'm Caitlin Christofferson. We've got Anise Montpleasure or Montplaisir. Yeah, <laughs> that was a big debate at the Women's Summit. How do we pronounce Anise's last name? Yes, I loved that. We are so excited. We just got back from Women's Summit, so we're super pumped. And we actually met an incredible young woman named Delana Stinshaver while we were out there. And she has worked her way up from going from Enrolled Downs with her family as a child to attending University of Arizona as a bio major and is now a production assistant for FanDuel at Santa Anita. So we are so excited to share her story with you. It's really inspiring. We just got back from Women's Summit. We're all about supporting young women getting into the industry and we can't wait to share it. Let's go. Welcome, Delana Stenchaver, to the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. We are pumped to have you on today, and especially on such short notice. This is the the day that we're recording is the Monday immediately after the Horse Racing Women's Summit that took place in California at Santa Anita. And Caitlin, you are actually responsible for tracking down our guests for today. So yeah, let's talk a bit about the summit before we really dive into our interview. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I work really hard alongside the incredible volunteer committee at the Horse Racing Women's Summit to put on another fabulous um, event. It was their second summit. And um, in between, they've also had events at Gulfstream, Saratoga, Keeneland. So there's so much happening there. It's incredible to see. And I feel like you know, it's especially maybe like the past three months, like it's been kind of rough in our sport. And when I get with these women, um, everybody at the summit, I just feel so re-energized and, you know, it's like we feed off of each other's passions and we kind of get back to our roots and it's like, okay, like we're all just horse girls who are trying to make a living doing something that we love and, and we love horses first and foremost. And so I just come back, you know, just energized and it was incredible. The keynote with Reagan Cannon was absolutely amazing this year. Um, the first panel, the state of the industry with a message, a personalized video message from Shannon Arvin, Lisa Lazarus, uh, the CEO of Haiza. And um, we also had Joy Garner from Naira, as well as so many other like incredible speakers. Just the content was just as amazing as, as last year's, if not better. So I want to add really quick to that piece that you just mentioned, Caitlin, like going through speakers. Uh, you guys did such a good job on the social media. If anybody out there follows the Horse Racing Women Summit on social media, you get all these really cool behind the scenes snippets and quotes from each of the speakers. So some of those quotes that really stood out along the way and it kind of takes you behind the scenes. But I would agree. I think this year was even better than last year in terms of how the team took feedback from the first mm -hmm. summit and really, you know, implemented that in ways like having you know, like you said, Reagan was awesome as a keynote speaker, some really good takeaways from her. And she was there the whole week, like yeah. all three days. It was amazing the on Friday morning to have so many people, including Reagan, at this amazing, like, you know, morning work session slash think tank. And I felt like that could have been one of the best parts of the whole summit. It was so incredible to see how many people stayed for, you know, because it starts Wednesday with a welcome uh, cocktail party. And then it's all day Thursday, <laughs> like literally 8am to 5pm, you are going and then after I think 5pm, you're, you know, networking again and having cocktails. And um, Friday morning, it was just awesome to have like all of that energy in the room. And especially from so many young women just kind of starting their careers in the industry or in college still 
And Delena was one of those people that actually my mother bumped into. My mother was making a lot of friends at the cocktail party. And she she was like, okay, you have to meet this person this week and this person. And uh, you've got a wing woman in your mom. Yeah. She's working for you. She's gonna pre-screen oh everybody before you go and meet them yourself. Well, she met some amazing people that I'm so glad she um, she did. And that w- then she was able to introduce me and, uh, Delano was one of them. Um, I'm so excited to have her on our podcast today because I think she's just an example of a young woman who's worked really hard to get to the point where she's at, um, with FanDuel and, you know, her trajectory is, is just up and, forward and it, it really shows what hard work and um, even when you don't have necessarily like the best connections in the industry, how you can make your way into it. Uh, kind of like if, if there's a will, there's a way, but also just seeing so many women at the conference make connections. So many women who were in college and they were like, you know, pre-vet or um, studying marketing and they were like, you know, I, I just know I want to be in the industry and I want to do something with horse racing. And this is how I want to like find my way in the world. And it was, it was incredible. We had uh, a couple current and several former Amplify mentees that were there, several current mentors, people who've mentored in the past. It was awesome to have that, you know, there was just so much camaraderie and, you know, love seeing the Amplify connections too. But Delena, before we really dive into your story, do you want to share your impressions from the summit? This was your first year going, correct? Yeah, this is my first year. I had heard about it last year at, towards the end of Del Mar and I was like, ooh, that sounds like something that would be really fun to go to as someone that was really fresh into horse racing in the industry and didn't know a ton of people. Um, but unfortunately, I was having to travel back to Arizona and then back to Washington. But this year was a lot of fun. Like I took a lot away from it. I still haven't up until this past week, like I hadn't known a lot of people in the industry, let alone a lot of women in the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to continue to have the opportunity to network and meet all these amazing people, whether they are directly um, working at a track or they're working at a vet or they're in Kentucky or Texas or wherever, it was just incredible to be able to be a part of a community so much larger than what I'm used to. Um, so it was, I, I, I loved it. I loved the, hearing the panels and other people's experiences and being able to see parts of myself and my own career and journey and other people to know that it's possible, that I'm not out here alone, that it has been done before. Um, so I, I really enjoyed the emphasis on networking this year. I know that was something that um, Shauna had said that they were working towards more last year. That was the feedback. And Again, like as someone that was really new, like I enjoyed it. And as it turned out, I had more connections and rules of what's it with rule of third of meeting people or (laughs) third circle kind of thing. People that I turns out I had known through someone else, which was crazy to think about. Um, But it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it all. It was funny. Like I we were talking in the previous podcast where we were kind of previewing the Horse Racing Women Summit. Uh, you know, the opportunity to have those really targeted networking spaces. Like I've met Joy Garner in passing before, but I would never really have the opportunity to just, you know, go up and chat with her. And I ended up in a conversation with her and Chanel Minifield, who was on um, my panel, the looking forward kind of about the the future of racing and we just had the greatest time and I feel like really solidified those connections. So it's not just the networking, but having the natural space for it where it doesn't feel forced. Absolutely. And again, on um, like, obviously there was the five for your tribe that they pushed on Wednesday during cocktail hour, but then to have the opportunity to put it really into effect on Friday during the workshop. I sincerely enjoyed the workshop on Friday because Mm -hmm. I got to meet, even more people at various stages in their careers, whether they were just starting out like me or they were towards the end of their careers and they were looking towards the future of what they want the next generation to do. Like I, again, it was something that I really enjoyed and hearing about how their journey was woven through horse racing and what they've been able to do. 
I want to explain that five for your tribe for anybody out there <laughs> listening. Cause I actually think this is a really good technique that people could just use at any event that they're going to minus the very formal cue card for it. <laughs> but we all got a, a card um, that, you know, you were encouraged to meet five new people and write down um, their name, where they work, and then their contact info, their, either their email or their phone number. And then at the Women's Summit, you got a prize or you were entered for a drawing for a prize if you filled out your entire card. I will say I won a teapot set <laughs> and I have it right here. And I have never been so stoked about any drawing that I have won ever. But I think getting back to the main point of that, it's really good to have that little extra push to get you to go out and meet people. And I think there's even, you know, a, a natural way of doing that in any setting, like giving yourself that mental goal of, I'm going to meet five new people today. I'm going to introduce myself, get their contact info. And then maybe you just buy yourself a prize afterwards. I don't know. I'm all about that treat yourself kind of that thing. That was absolutely Stephanie Hieronymus' brainchild. Um, and it was so great. And it's funny, to your point, Anise, about the natural flow of conversation in kind of like a safe space like that. Um, so there were actually like eight questions on the back of the card that were conversation starters. And oh, I didn't even notice that. I don't think anybody used them because the conversation was flowing so naturally. It was like, you didn't need to look at the back of the card and be like, um, which question should I ask you to get to know you better? Because yeah. Yeah. That's for I, at least for me, it was, oh, I'd look at, I'm like, I'm not staring like at you. I'm like trying to like figure out your name and like who you're with. And then that was usually the start of the conversation. Like it, everyone was so friendly and so welcoming that you didn't need a question starter. Everyone's just like, so what, what are you doing here? Who do you work for? Like, what's your story? And it just kind of went from there. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Well, it was, it was really fun. I'm so pumped and energized you know, getting back to work, leaving the event. And um, I'm so excited, Delena, to dive into your story because as Caitlin reflected on, you know, you did come from this outside of the industry, really navigating your own pathway sort of situation. So let's start with how, where are you from and how did you become interested in horses to begin with? All right, so I'm from Washington State, born and raised there. I grew up there 18 years of my life. Um, I've kind of always had the horse bug. I was the crazy horse girl growing up. Um, I got my first horse at 14. His name is Hunter. He's now 25. Aww. He's living the good old geriatric life with his pastor buddy, who's now 23, Hunter and Alvin. They look identical. They're very cute. My mom likes to put them in identical blankets. My dad doesn't appreciate it so much. But um, I grew up going to Emerald Downs. Like, that was my home track. We would go and spend birthday weekends out there or Father's Day. Um, we tended to do it earlier in the season before it got super hot because then they tend to push their post times pretty late to avoid the heat in the Washington summers. Um, but, yeah, like, going to Emerald Downs, we've been – we started doing that when I was in a stroller. Um, and then about 2012, like, we just kind of got involved in some other activities activities and extracurriculars and life just kind of took off. So we weren't going to the track as much, but we knew Ralph Bogka, who was a big influence in Washington. Um, and he would get us on the backside for morning workouts and go through barns. And I got to meet trainers that way. Granted, I was super young. So they're very vivid memories that I have, but I don't remember a bunch of the names because I never in my wildest dreams would have expected that I would have ended up in horse racing as a career. Um, but fast forward, I went to college at the University of Arizona. Um, I was originally a bio major with a pre-med emphasis. I wanted to be a pediatrician and I had had that dream for 10 plus years at that point. Um, so it was, it was hard to give that up and try and focus on something else. Um, I redirected my focus to journalism with a broadcasting emphasis. Um, the goal was to be the next Aaron Andrews. How did um, that how did that idea come into your brain? Like how did you take that hard left or right turn, whatever it was, into journalism? Um, so I've always had a passion for sports. I've always loved them, whether I'm 
watching them or playing them. I, I got involved in sports when I was about five or six playing basketball at the Y. Um, I played basketball, volleyball. I swam competitively. I, I've dabbled in golf and fast pitch and done all these different things. And so athletics has always been a big part of my life. And I started finally competing when I was in college in, in equestrian sports when I was with IHSA. And um, I, I was, I've been going to football games since I was itty bitty, like I was going to the horse races. And so I was, I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan. And so one day my dad and I were on the phone and we were watching the game and we were kind of picking it apart and analyzing it. And he's just like, have you ever thought about a career in broadcasting? Like you're good at writing. Public speaking doesn't scare you. Um, like I was that person in school where I, we'd have to do a presentation and I was just like, well, just let me do all the talking. It'll be fine. I'll take care of it. It'll be good. Um, and I was like, all right, well, we'll look into it. Cause I had looked Funny enough, I had looked at the racetrack industry program that University of Arizona offers because it is one of the best ranked programs in the country for racetrack industry kids. Um, and he had told me, no, maybe don't emphasize in that right now. Like, you don't know where the sport's going to be in a couple of years. And at the time, like, Santa Anita was just coming off one of its worst seasons. So it, it made sense. 2019, um, right? So I redirected to journalism. Turns out they shared the same floor of the building. So I was passing by kids before I ever knew they were RITP kids. Um, but I had enough credits in my biology major at that point my sophomore year that I converted it to a minor. Um, and so I minored in biology. Uh, and so as I went through my journalism career and COVID was at its peak, I was taking a lot of these classes online. And so being able to, I, my, my class and I, that I took, a, these people that I took a lot of classes with, we all generally thought that we were set so much farther behind than the people in front of us or behind us because all of our core classes were online, whereas they got to do a lot of their core classes and electives in person. Um, but we, we pushed through, we, we did it, class of 2022. We graduated, I graduated on time miraculously. Um, Along the way, I, I got a second minor in sports management, which fit right in with the leadership stuff that I was doing. And um, I was working four years with the athletic department with the football team and their sports medicine, which was so much fun. I loved working. The, again, I loved football. I loved working those games and being on the sidelines. That was also the trigger that really let me know that I, I love being in the action. I love seeing it up front and being one of the first people to know what's going on so reporting just kind of made sense because you need to know what's going on whether it's at the track or a football game or a stadium like if something happens you got to be the one to tell people um so on top of doing sports medicine my senior year i was working at reedo park um it's where bob baffert got his start it's now a mixed breed track of thoroughbreds and quarter horses i was doing a production assistant there working on tote graphics and i was emceeing so that was my very first like experience working at a track very tiny track, like maybe a six-week meet. Um, and it was actually a ton of fun. And that's where I started meeting the Racetrack Industry Program kids my senior year. And they took me in. I got to meet the director. I started doing interviews. Um, I was put on a radio station post time with Aaron Percusi and Corey LaRusso. Um, they gave, they liked me so much, they invited me back for a couple more weeks after that. And that's how I got my sports betting segment of Dialed In with Delena. And so things just kind of kept happening. The more people that I met, more opportunities and more doors opened. Because um, at the time I was interning for another radio station that was local in Tucson. And that was an all sports station. But I was starting to get followers and people wanted to hear my opinion. I was like, okay, this is realistic. Like, I can do this. Like, it's not just that I'm a woman doing this, but I can do this. Like, people want, like, they want to hear my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and so the guy that was my preceptor for that internship in Tucson at that radio station got me my job at Del Mar last summer, 2022, after I graduated as the press box steward. So I started working with Mac McBride and he was great. And Del Mar was lovely because, you know, who doesn't love Del Mar? <laughs> um, and more doors just kept opening. I met more people and I happened to be on the backside one day. I was talking to Dan Blacker and he was kind of showing me what a normal morning looks like for him and his horses. And he introduced me to Brittany Erton and she did an interview with me kind of about this same stuff right now. And um, it aired and my current boss saw it and she said, I want you to come work for me. And so I ended up at FanDuel. That is awesome. Like talk about one thing leading to the other. You, you mentioned IHSA, Delano, which 
for anybody out there who's not familiar with that acronym, that is the Intercollegiate Horse Show Association. So it allows um, young people who maybe competed before college or maybe have never competed before to continue competing um, in a college setting where you go to other universities, the university hosting generally provides the horses, you draw your horse out of a hat, so you've never ridden this horse before, and you get on them for the first time when you go into the ring to compete. So, Delena, as your career was kind of taking Which you- Which sounds nerve-wracking. Like, I don't even know. There were, there were some horses I was definitely nervous to get on, and I was just like, are we sure this is a good idea? And there were other horses that I had seen them in school, and I had had opportunities to ride them numerous times, and I was like, I'm so excited. I know how to ride this horse, because- IHSA is truly all about how good you are as a rider because you truly don't know what horse you're going to get. Yeah. Do you find, uh, so I have two questions relating to that. Okay. One, were you, you know, as your love of racing grew, were you able to bring any of your IHSA friends and teammates into the racing world and introduce them to that? And then the second thing being, mm -hmm. how much do you use uh, you know, what you learn from riding IHSA and developing yourself as a horsewoman in, you know, the on-camera work that you're starting to do more of now. Yeah. So those are two really separate answers. So we, and I have to say, we get a lot of off-the-track thoroughbreds, a lot of horses that have been flipped. Um, so unfortunately, some of those horses are failed race horses. Like they just were very slow. They didn't want to run. Or maybe it's a good thing because they found maybe it's a good thing. Those are the best ones. Some of the best hunter jumpers I have it's, ever yeah, been. Those are the best ones. When right. I lived in Kentucky, everybody was like, if you can find a slow thoroughbred that jumps well, that's like golden. Yeah. <laughs> Through IHSA and my trainer that I kept working with post IHSA, um, I've had the opportunity to ride some absolutely incredible thoroughbreds. And that only like continued to get me like involved in racing because I wanted to know what their race record was, where they raced, what their oh. name was. Um, because depending on what their jockey club name was, that would depend if we registered them under the same name for USJHA, I think. USA Hunter Jumper Association. There's a lot of letters Charles's, in there. Charles's race name. I wanted to keep it the same. So his yeah. USF and his USHJA is checkered, which is what he ran under once. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just makes it easy to keep track of them if they're all registered under the same name. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, it's it helps our um, our platform when right. we say, look at these horses. It's, it definitely makes for more. Well, and you see the retired racehorse projects and those horses go off and compete. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes they end up in these other hands. And it's it's nice to see them to keep going and see them in their second career. So I really enjoyed seeing that in my HSA and with mm -hmm. my trainer who allowed me to be able to help determine how broke was broke. <laughs> um, she'd get done with the initial training. She's like, okay, go hop on it. I want videos. Let's see how, let's see how he does. And I was like, okay. Let's go have some fun. And I um, any explain, explain that to any audience members out there who maybe don't understand that transition of, you know, a horse, the, the training that they have, the aid, the, the riding yeah. aids that they're used to when they're on the track versus yeah. the riding aids that you're using as, a, you know, in an equestrian sport. Yeah. So jockeys, when they're on the track, they're in a very crouched position on top of the horse. Their legs don't drape down. So they're missing those aids as legs. That's why they have a crop. It's an extension of their leg and their arm. It's not used as a weapon. And I think that's something that's really misinterpreted. Andy Bancone, who also works for Vandal, did a phenomenal demonstration about this earlier, about it's not a weapon. This is how we use it as an extension of an aid to make sure that we can get them to run in a straight line, flip their leads, um, things that we can normally do with our legs as an equestrian that rides any other discipline. So as a hunter jumper, typically we're in a little bit more of a crouch than you might see in a Western riding saddle position or in a dressage position where the leg is completely extended. Um, so a lot of the things that my trainer would work on is control, slow, pace. Um, we never wanted them feeling frantic because a lot of times you'd add leg or you'd sit and the horse would want to go faster because that's what they're used to. When a jockey all of a sudden sits down and starts crouching, the horse usually starts running faster on the track. Um, so those were some of the control aspects that we worked on was having a full seat, but still being control in hand in the bridle, um, but still being quiet. We liked them to feel confident about what they're doing, but be quiet and not anxious about it. 
and I have seen a couple of off the track thoroughbreds where they like a lot of contact. They feel more confident when you have as much contact and leg and hand on them as possible because they need that. And then I've seen others where you can ride them on a long rein and they don't want any contact and they're happy as a clam. Um, so when she would get done, she starts on the ground with some groundwork, make sure that they handle a saddle, they can handle leg being down by, so she typically starts them under a Western saddle. So they get used to something around their sides again. Um, and then she starts them on the flat, just walk, trot, canter, nice and easy so that they get their confidence built. Cause it's, I mean, they're herd animals. They need some confidence and that's okay. Um, and then, so typically after about six to 12 weeks, she, I was one of her working students at the time. She'd go, okay, let's put you on him. Let's see what he does. Walk, trot, canter. Um, and then depending on how that went would depend on how many days a week I'd get on him or if I was going to jump him later. And his name was Chase. He was actually a racehorse for, I want to say, up until about his four-year-old year. And then he ponied, oh, no, the five- or six-year-old year, something like that. He was actually shipped in from California. Um, and then he ponied for a couple years after that. And then she turned him into a hunter-jumper, and he's now a kid's horse. And um, he's doing absolutely phenomenal. It always amazes me the – OTTBs or X-Race horses that become pony horses. Right. Because I feel like, I mean, t that's totally like, at least in the hunter jumper, we're asking them to generally move forward. Right. There have been a few times in a flat class, a horse is coming past us and I'm like, okay, Charles, remember this, we're not at the track. Right. But pony horses are literally trained to not move a muscle mm -hmm. while horses race past them at, 25, 30 plus miles per hour. Yes. And it's like, that's what they were originally trained to do. And now they just have to stand there and watch it. It's, it's the, they're, those are the ones that I have like a ton of respect for. Absolutely. I feel like if you could get an ex pony horse, that's probably a very solid horse. <laughs> yes. So to answer your original question, for I just say, I didn't necessarily find a bunch of people going into the racing world looking for them, but we did get a lot of OTTBs into our programs. Um, I forgot what your second question was. I'm sorry. I went off on a tangent. No, I, I think that, well, you sort of combine the questions in a really <laughs> lovely way because I was curious to know, you know, if you had any teammates that became interested in racing because of your interest in racing, but then also now today, as you're starting to do one of your, like more of the on air work, um, you know, you mentioned that your career goal is to be a, um, like an on-air sports reporter, how much you use that horsemanship that you gained from IHSA yeah. in the on-air work. So while I didn't necessarily see my IHSA teammates going and seeking out horse racing, um, as much as we loved our OTTBs once they came off the track, um, I myself, I definitely find myself looking at racehorses differently and I've had to adjust how I look at racehorses, um, because they're built differently than we have hunter jumpers. Caitlin, you can probably speak to this is our hunter jumpers tend to be a little beefier, probably a little too chunky for the track. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I love, I love a little chunky, love, love a little squish on them. Um, but racehorses, they tend to be extremely fit. Um, they tend to have a really long or um, oh, they tend to overreach in their walk quite a bit. Not something that I typically look for in my hunter jumper horses because I don't want them clipping themselves in the ring. Um, but it, the physiology of how these horses in racing form versus like hunter jumper dressage or any other equestrian form, it's, it's different how they're built. Yeah, the way they're race. built, most racehorses are not most, but some they're all at least trained to move a little bit more downhill. Right. Um, whereas some of the warm bloods you can get on and it's like, right. It's, it's like it's just the shoulder. It's like, even if this horse puts on the brakes, it's going to be hard for you to go anywhere because you've just got shoulder and neck in front of you. Oh, no. We had a warm blood at the last barn where they bought him specifically because if he stopped, his neck was so thick and his shoulders were so tall. He just went like this. <laughs> And you just sat there. You didn't move. He just <laughs> was insane. Well, I think, Anise, that's such a great point about how she answered the question. Because um, something I wrote down so that I wouldn't forget as you were elaborating on that is 
again, another tie to the women's summit, right? Um, is Charles C. Canty. And she received the 2023 Jane Goldstein Award for women who have been trailblazers in horse racing media. And one of the, it, it stuck with me. I notated the quote, but I didn't need to because it really stuck with me. One of the things I believe it was in the video of all the incredible, the most amazing female reporters in our industry in this video of them all, you know, congratulating and thanking Chelsea. One of them said, you brought your horsemanship to the camera. And I just thought that was incredible. Mm -hmm. And what we need more of. Absolutely. I, I go back to education of this sport and being able to let people know that what's going on in certain scenarios, it's okay. Like it's what these horses need. It's the support that they require. Like some people get really flustered about chains or lip chains. And I'm like, these are big animals. Like they sometimes need that extra support to be able to go and do their job safely to make sure that everyone else is safe. Um, some people get really upset about the crops. And like I said, it's not a weapon. It's an extension of our leg. It's an aid. Um, and so continuing to just acknowledge, to educate people and give them the knowledge that um, the horsemanship that's taking place is okay. It, it's a safety thing for a lot of people. It's, it's not nothing. It's not anything that's going to harm the horse. Because that's why we're in it. We're in it for the love of the horse. It's interesting. Just yesterday, I actually saw a video about an equine physio who is doing an exercise putting pressure on a horse's uh, like under their upper lip on their gum area, exactly where you would see a lip chain go um, because of the endorphin release. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I wish she would have been explaining exactly what she was doing, but this horse was asleep. And so, you know, I guess different people might have different reasons for using a lip chain, but part of it, uh, part of the reason why it relaxes them is, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I guess an acupressure point, we could call mm -hmm. it, that releases endorphins. Well, yeah. it's the same reason why you might lip, lip twitch a horse. Like, there are certain things that it's just a distraction more than anything else mm -hmm. so that they can focus on something else and not... I call it put off too much hiss and piss. Um, they get a little too spicy sometimes. So it just gives them that distraction to be able to focus on something else. So funny. Do you still ride, Delena? Do you ride on a consistent basis? I do. I just started riding on a consistent basis again. I moved to California back in November and I went close to nine months without riding. And that was hard. Um, for a long time, I've seen horses and riding as part of who I am. It's made up a lot of my life whether I was at the track or I was just competing. Um, so to go nine months without riding was very difficult. Um, so I have started riding once a week again, and it's a little expensive, but it is what I do for myself to help reset. And Amen. If, I, if I have any distractions going on, it's the best place to be because I can't focus on anything else. I have a thousand pound animal in front of me that needs me to focus on whatever – that animal needs at that time or because I'm pony sized, I get on a lot of ponies. <laughs> so Caitlin knows this because I probably talk about it way more than I should, but I started playing polo last year and awesome. it, is, it is a pretty expensive hobby, but I'm like, take my, <laughs> yeah. like, I feel so good about life when I'm doing it. I think about it when I'm not doing it, you know, when you're, you're, when you're on a horse and you're just hitting a ball, that's yeah. it's like the most, the most mindful form of mindfulness that right. I participated in. So honestly, you know what, sometimes you got to do that for your self care. And sometimes that means taking on a side hustle to pay for it. But <laughs> oh yeah. You do sweat it. Yeah. If anybody has any out there, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> Charles. Yeah, Charles oh, ahead, is really, he's like the epitome of expenses. <laughs> oh man. Um, so Delaney, you mentioned relocating to California. I think a question that we get at times is, you know, relocating to a different part of the country can be intimidating. You've done that a couple times. You're from Washington, you went to school in Arizona, you've now relocated to California. 
any advice for a young person who might be looking at relocating for the first time and feels a little intimidated by that process? Yeah, absolutely. It, it can be really intimidating. The first time around, I had my full family support. Obviously, I was going to college, and so I was moving into a dorm. Um, so my, my parents, my brother, like they helped move me in. And so that was a very different experience because I was 18 and I was truly starting out on my own, but I had this college campus community around me, um, that kind of helped push me along and kept supporting me through that. Um, then my sophomore year, I moved into a different house with different roommates, but I still had people around me supporting me through that move and that transition. When I came to California, it was very different. So when I was at Del Mar, I was staying in a family's house. Um, my, um, my uncles had a vacation house and they allowed me to stay in there for Del Mar, which I am incredibly grateful for. Um, and you know, that was just eight weeks. That was a couple of suitcases. It wasn't very hard to do. Um, and then at that point I was getting ready to accept my job from FanDuel. So I drove from Del Mar back to Tucson, Arizona. And then within like a couple days of being back in Arizona, I flew back to Washington And in that span of time, I accepted a job with FanDuel. So I was trying to get everything together to be able to pack up my life in two separate states that were nowhere near each other. Um, And my mom had just started a new job. And so I was back home helping my dad with all the animals at the time. And so we were trying to coordinate things of who drives a U-Haul from Washington, how do I get all my stuff from Arizona, and how do we convene in one spot? So having the support system of my family was so, so important for me because I don't, I could not have done it without them. Like I, I might've, but it would have taken me a lot longer and it would have cost a lot more. They were very supportive emotionally, physically, financially in that spot. Um, I understand not everybody has the family or this, that kind of support system that they're able to lean on. I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate in that. But when I moved to California, I, I did not have a support system. And like I said, it wasn't until about eight or nine months ago that I finally actually started meeting people and getting myself a support system after living here on my own. Um, I wish I had sooner that I had gotten involved in more things. Um, Some of it was a financial constraint because California is expensive. Um, But I I could not, and I would not be here without my family. Um, I talked to them multiple times a day sometimes when I am just like, is this normal? Like I am, am I adulting correctly? Like, can we, maybe help me and like make sure that this is correct. I still feel Um, like that sometimes. Yes. So my family has been incredibly supportive along the way and at different stages that I have chosen to relocate and move because had I ended up in Kentucky or New York, I'd like to think that they would have given me the same level of support, but I don't know. I I think they would have, but I don't know. Um, Moving that far across the country rather than just a couple Mm -hmm. of states. I think another point about, you know, the horse racing women's summit and creating networks and, you know, having a network like we're trying to create with Amplify and our mentorship program, there are so many people in racing who want to be able to provide that support system. Like I got together with a friend who lives in California now working for a trainer uh, who I haven't seen in some time. And she relocated basically from New Jersey to California And she started out by living with the parents of her mentor. So her, one of her really good mentors who connected her with the job she has in California, uh, gave her a place to stay. And now I believe she's staying with other friends. So there is an awesome network in racing. And, you know, as you meet and solidify those connections, people are really willing to help out and, become your new network and support system Mm -hmm. in those places. It really, I feel like it's who you know and who's willing to vouch for you. Um, Because it took me a solid couple of months for people to be like, oh, like she's not going anywhere. She's going to only better the industry. Because there's a little bit of a stigma, I think, of new people coming in, which which sounds awful because we need new people to keep growing the sport and making it stronger and making it more mainstream and not having a stigma around it. So it's kind of a catch-22. I had another question and then it just left my brain. Oh, I've been there so many times. Okay, I'm making notes of (laughs) we have two places to edit. That's so funny. I guess my other thing, like, you know, going back to the fact that your your goal is to be an on-air sports reporter, you already touched on, you know, you've you've never been intimidated by public speaking, you're a good communicator. 
Do you have any advice for somebody who might have a similar interest in, you know, being in a public speaking type role? Like, what does your preparation process look like? Well, actually, wait, first, <laughs> can we, I want to back up like one step. Yeah. Can we talk about what she's currently doing at FanDuel and how that's like furthering Oh, her. yeah, I guess we didn't <laughs> yet, did we? All right. So my current role at FanDuel is I have a main job and then I wear a lot of different hats on top of that. So my main job title is partner production supervisor. So I was brought in to help manage and supervise all of our in-show elements that we might have. So that could be anything from sales contracts that we have different elements that are contractually obligated um, to hit air. So Gainsway Breeders Spotlights or Lane's End Dirt Breeders Cup winning your in races or Spendthrift two-year-old two race of the day, Spendthrift Road to the Kentucky Derby, Kentucky Oats. All those kind of things are things that I have to put into a sheet and send out to producers and be like, hey, this is when we have to run them at this time to be able to fill this obligation. And then along with that, because we are FanDuel now, um, so we do have access to Sportsbook and Casino, um, any offers that they run, they send those to me, and then um, I get our assets out to our graphics department, and then I'm sending scripts out to our talent and our producers. And then on top of all that, I also create um, on-site talent promos, so I'm involved in remotes as well of where we're sending people on any given week. Um, so those have to be done at least a week in advance um, so that we can promote where we're going to be that weekend because um, all the big racing happens on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, let's see here. What else do I do? Um, I do this past weekend, I was doing some social media work at Santa Anita. Um, so while that's not my main job and I'm not the one immediately posting on our socials, I do send them to our social media manager. Um, and then she will get them up or edit them however she feels that she needs to. Um, and then the newest thing, I guess it's not necessarily the newest thing, but the thing that I am working towards the most that I aligned with my boss, I'm like, I don't mind starting in production, but this is where I want to go is, um, reporting is being a sports reporter. I love telling people stories. Everybody has a story to tell. Each one of us obviously has a very unique story um, of how we got into horse racing and our love for the horse. And those are the stories that need to be told. Um, I love talking to the jockeys and the trainers because everyone's got their own story or their own interpretation of maybe how a race should be run or how it did run. Um, you like talking in the winner's circle because everybody wants to be a winner and everybody wants their 10 seconds of fame. Um, I've gotten the chance to talk to owners, trainers, jockeys, um, jockey agents, photographers, just anyone. And it's been so much fun. Um, I started doing some reporting at La Salle, Amito's Thoroughbred Daytime Racing back in July. Did a little bit there. I got to do quite a bit more these past two weeks in September. And I'm hoping that I'm going to get some more opportunities here at Santa Anita soon. So after this podcast too, people will know to start looking for you. I'm definitely going to be looking for you. <laughs> it's not uncommon, especially on the weekend for TVG to be on uh, constantly. <laughs> so, or sorry, FanDuel. I was it's just going to okay. explain. So maybe there are people out there that used to follow TVG and now there's FanDuel. Yeah. Um, and I still hear people use them interchangeably. Is it all FanDuel now? It is all FanDuel. So what our network one that we call it is FanDuel TV. What used to be network two or TVG two um, is now FanDuel Racing. And you can get everything mm. on the FanDuel TV Plus app, which is available on Roku, Amazon Fire, and Apple TV. We've been doing lots of promos on that, so I've got that one memorized. <laughs> um we do still offer wagering on tvg.com and we still have our tvg uh social medias which is specific to horse racing and that is to not mix up with the fandle um fandle social medias um we do have kyle levy now on our team who does stuff specifically with them with with fanduel socials to promote horse racing on their sites so we do get some um i don't want to call it cross-pollination but you know it's like I don't know what word I'm looking for um so that's been a ton of fun to watch <clears throat> the integration between horse racing and sportsbook um FanDuel Sportsbook just launched in Kentucky on the 28th so that's really exciting oh, so now we're gonna September, get right 
Huh? Of the 28th of September? Yes, 28th of September this last month. Um, So that's really exciting. FanDuel now has contracts with all four Kentucky tracks, so we have exclusive rights to Churchill, uh, Kentucky Downs, Turfway, and Keeneland. So that's the place to find Kentucky Racing if you want to watch it, which has been absolutely amazing. It's opened a lot of opportunities for us to be that heavily based in Kentucky. Um, So TVG technically still exists wagering-wise and social media-wise, but we are FanDuel TV. That's a great explanation. What what was that? Sorry. That was a great explanation because – Obviously, as doing social media, I uh, had be- been very aware that there was still TVG. TVG uh, is where you find but... all the horse racing stuff, all of it. <laughs> gotcha. I, and I, something I've made note of with you know, Amplify has just gone through this whole process of <laughs> creating a new website, which is going to launch in hopefully a week from today to be this really cool educational platform, but. You know, we try to educate about some basic things like how to learn about the sport. What are some resources and tools that you can go to? Where do you watch racing? And watching racing has never been the easiest, most streamlined process because as you touched on, Delena, you know, you guys work with some tracks in particular. Other tracks might work with other TV channels, like for anybody watching Saratoga this summer. Any Um, New York racing goes directly through Naira and Fox, which, I mean, when you have really good racing at Saratoga in the summer that's competing with Del Mar and you can't show it, like, I think it was the Travers that had an absolutely phenomenal field, and we were so disappointed that we don't have that contract. We can't show those races. We can't even show a backtrack of that race, um, which is sad because, you know, it had – Kentucky Derby winners, runner-ups, like it was a mini Kentucky Derby. It was like the first Travers in history, I believe, that it had, had the Derby, the Preakness, Derby, and the, the Preakness, and the Belmont winner, right? Yep. They were all different. <laughs> for Archangel to win that race and now be ranked number one in the country, like that was a really monumental race that we weren't able to show. So, I mean, this is where we really would like to be able to start working together with other production companies, I think, mm-hmm. and being able to work with more tracks universally to be able to have more contracts to even be able to show backtracks that race and be like, Hey, look, I know we have a partnership with NBC where as long as we label their stuff and give them credit, we're able to show NBC backtracks. Um, We're able to show like breeders cup backtracks and derby backtracks and Oaks backtracks. um, Cause we don't necessarily have the contracts for those particular races, even though we have the contract with tracks now, um, which has been a little different than it's been in the past. Um, But like that still opens opportunities to be able to show people, previous races that horses may have run in. Thank you for explaining that. Cause it's, uh, there's not a straightforward way of being like, this is the one channel to go and watch racing. Yeah, there's nothing know, like NBC cool. has a lot of the big, like the breeders mm-hmm. and yeah, some of the, right. you know, some particular like big races, the triple crown races, things yeah. like that throughout the year. So, well, I mean, it could be on Fox. It could be FS, FS1, FS2, FanDuel, like there is a wide variety of networks that it could be on. So depending on what region you're in or what state you're in could depend on who has what contract. Yeah. And that can be like very difficult to explain to somebody new to racing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, you might be able to watch it here, here, here. I do feel like streaming is streamlining it somewhat. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's definitely has been a barrier, I think. Um, I wanted to touch on something, Delena, that you said about being a production assistant, because I feel like some people out there, and I speak from personal experience, might not understand how exactly you get to be an on-air reporter. And the most common way that I have heard of to this point now that I did not know like a long time ago was being a production assistant. So it's, it's yeah. not that you show up at the network and the next thing, you know, you're on TV. They're like, Oh yeah, you'd be amazing. Like get on host a show the next day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's so many people, even in traditional media um, or traditional broadcast that started out as a production assistant or a runner, something of that mm-hmm. nature. 
I'm glad yeah. you brought it back, Caitlin. Caitlin definitely brought it back to like five All steps. the way back to the beginning. Yeah, to be able to say that I had worked at a racetrack before going and working at a big track like Del Mar um, definitely, I think, helped give me a little bit of credibility because I had an idea of what I was getting myself into. Um, working as a PA could mean a lot of things for a lot of different companies. For that position at that small of a track, I was a runner. I was an MC. I was putting up tote graphics. I was having to do transitional director switcher board things on an emergency basis. Um, what is your runner? Um, well, for that track, it meant usually running to and from the towers that we had cameras in or the paddock um, with a microphone or with lens cleaners. Like mm. for any company, a PA assistant is going to be different. For FanDuel, a PA assistant could be someone helping operate a camera or potentially working in the booth and helping call out different things that need to be checked off or whatnot. Like, we're looking, Fandle is soon to be looking for production assistant interns um, to help with our race scheduling stuff and directors. Um, so, I mean, being a production assistant, again, has a wide variety of jobs that could mean anything at any one time. So it does get you a lot of diversity and work experience and get your foot in the door, which is huge in horse racing, because the more things you learn how to do, the more valuable you become to the team. Um so doing that at Rito and then getting to step up into the press box steward role in the media box was big because then I was still in media and I was working as a journalist and being able to put my college degree to use, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then to be able to go to FanDuel and get put into a higher production role was even more exciting um, because it allowed me to see so many other areas of production and be able to understand why talent have to act a certain way or do a certain thing because of producers or directors calling out certain things that they need to do and saying like, Hey, you need to do this or need you to do this. Hey, can you record this for me kind of thing? Um, and as I've gotten more on air opportunities, I've had certain directors talk to me through my IFB piece in my ear and be like, Hey, can you record a stand up real quick about so-and-so's condition um, or do a recording with such and such trainer about such and such thing. Um, so to be able to understand the production side, to move to then on-air talent, it's how a lot of people have done. Bless you. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> there's a lot of people that are on-air positions now that started in production. <clears throat> Not necessarily your former athletes. Um, like, I don't know if Donna Brothers has ever worked in production, minus her time on-air and on the pony. Granted, she's great. I grew up watching Donna Brothers. <laughs> She's another one that's got inspiration. I was in a journalism class and the question was, what one job could be specific to you that you don't think anyone else could do? And I had mentioned being a pony and Donna Brothers doing the reporting from the pony. And I was like, these are two things that combine just perfectly. <laughs> um, so being able to start in production and understand how the entire show works and how it runs is so key to being on air. Mm -hmm. And I am only continuing to grow because of it. Caitlin, that was a great question. And I feel I, like these answers yeah. are getting so lengthy. Please tell me if I need to stop talking. No, that was that was a really good explanation. So this summer when we were doing Amplify was doing tours uh, in Saratoga, and I try to include different careers within mm -hmm. our tours so that we have different <laughs> we have people in various positions talking to our student groups. And Sarah Abadwi, who's a production assistant for mm -hmm. Naira came on and spoke and she's also starting to do some on-air stuff. So it, it sounds like you guys had very similar experiences mm -hmm. in what your pre on-air learning experience yeah. looked like and understanding the bigger picture of how the entire show fits together. Yes. Yeah. Um, there have been some that I know they were like, yeah, like I start, um, Jessica Piper is a great example of this. she has no broadcasting experience, but she started out, trainer I'm sorry daughter of a jockey daughter of a trainer she herself was a trainer I'm sorry she herself was a jockey and um now she's working as on-air talent for Sananita and she brings that horsewoman experience she brings that eye to be able to look at horses and go what's what but there are times you hear her you know maybe struggle a little bit on camera because she doesn't always understand the broadcast part of it she doesn't maybe understand the production part of it but she brings so much the horsewoman mm -hmm. that's a that's such a good point that it's like 
you know, different on-air talent perspectives. Well, you have to have perspectives. Yeah, when I listen to the broadcast, which I don't get to do often because I'm on the track working, <laughs> but when I do get to listen to them, it's it's so interesting. You know, with it's um, with like Tom Amos getting to listen to him. We've had him on the podcast before. Um, his perspective is like very different from you know Matt Bernier, like a handicapper yeah. perspective, or it's just yeah. Um, so and I, that's what I, makes everyone so unique is everyone has their own style. And like you mentioned, Matt Bernier, he is a heavy handicapper gambler. Like he is so good at it, it's ridiculous. But like that's who he is as an on-air talent. Like he is the core of like how do I make a big score? Like how do I get to that gambling point? Whereas like Christina, Christina Blacker, um, daughter of a jockey, daughter daughter of a trainer. Um, she married a trainer. Um, she's a horsewoman. She gets it. Like she knows how to look at horses and not just like look at their form physically, but look at their form within the DRF and mm-hmm. go, this horse is due. Like this horse is gonna run well. Like she does her race lenses for us through Equibase. And um she finds all kinds of like statistics and knowledge that I would never have dreamed about being able to find on a horse and she'll pull something out and I'm like, well, that's a really good point. Like that horse should run really well because of that. So I mean, there are so many different avenues and to make yourself indispensable as or indisposable as a talent to find your own style is so important. It's interesting. So I, I work as uh, my side hustle yeah. <laughs> is helping Breeders Cup to produce and co-host their Spanish coverage. So we do okay. Breeders Cup in Vivo, which is a, um, a series of Spanish shows covering the Challenge Series races, and then I help with Ibica TV, and then covering the actual Breeders' Cup and Spanish. So you work with Claudia then? Yep. Oh my god, that's awesome. And so because Spanish is my second language, and I'm not a handicapper, I really have to lean into the amplify side. Like the educational thing is what I've tried to make into my personal style but i'm really hearing like as you're talking the the experience that i lack is the knowledge of the production and like fitting together the different personalities as you create the show and so that is such a great perspective to take that i think i i will take away from this into the production assistant stuff that i'm helping with is you know really encouraging and supporting each member of the show and bringing out their personality and mm-hmm. what they specialize in so that, you know, everybody's not taking the exact same role. And here's, here's a question. So I've noticed a lot of shows have somebody who's kind of the, the transition person, like yeah. they will set up the other co-hosts to talk about a certain topic or they'll kind of summarize and tie a bow on things and then transition it to the next thing. They're not exactly the person who is sharing the information about each horse or giving any of the handicapping. They're like the transition person. Is there a technical name for that? We call that a host. So we have our host and we have our analyst. So um, our most common combinations together are Todd Shrupp and Simon Bray. So Simon Bray, who used to be a grade one horse racing trainer, he is our analyst because, again, he brings that side of horsemanship and a trainer and being able to describe why a trainer might drop in class or go up in class or stretch out in distance that maybe somebody else doesn't understand. Todd Shrub is, again, a really good handicapper, and so he is our host. He adds a lot of color to the show. He makes it very vibrant. Um, Michael Joyce and Christina Blacker are another really famous combo that we put together, Michael being the host and Christina being the analyst. Um, lately, if you've been watching our broadcast with Churchill, we've had three on the desk, which has been a ton of fun to mix, mix and match with, um, cause it adds more personalities. It adds another voice. Um, so at that point, typically then you'd have one host and two analysts, which again, it's just another viewpoint, another perspective, and you can just, adds for more conversation, which it just so much, just so much fun to watch the broadcast. Cause there's so much camaraderie amongst these people who have worked together, some of them, since the beginning of the company, since I, I want to say the company was founded in like 1999, um, 1990, something like that. But 
just to like see the camaraderie and everyone just so excited about horse racing and maybe so excited about one horse in particular that they all share one opinion about is just, it's, it's so much fun to watch. This has given me uh, such a different perspective. On yeah, that was a great, great yeah. way to summarize everything and Easton talking about the different styles. And that was something that I had always known but I had never like thought about it that much, yeah. um, especially you know doing all the Breeders' Cup Challenge Series broadcasts and being there for those. And yeah, well, and it goes so point. much further beyond just our talent on the desk. Like <laughs> Annie Bincone is sometimes on the pony. She was on the pony for almost all of Del Mar, and so that added the horsewoman out on the track to add another glimpse of maybe what was going behind the gate. If a horse was acting up behind the gate or somebody got loose, like we had someone to tell us they're right then and it's going. Um, we've got one to two reporters on the ground at all times. So that's our live view cameras. And those live view operators are absolutely wonderful. They carry around backpacks that probably radiate more UV and ultraviolet rays and all kinds of <laughs> stuff that maybe they shouldn't be carrying. Um, but they are huge supporters of us in front of the camera and, they are so much fun to work with and they travel so, so much. Um, so, I mean, there are so many aspects, not to mention we have our up camera guys, which are constantly finding horses for us to talk about what's on the screen. That's been a huge focus lately of getting our numbers up a percentage of how much we're talking about what's on the screen and the particular horse that's on the screen at one time. Um, and so we now have a designated up camera at a lot of our tracks to be able to go find specific horses for talent to talk about. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a huge team effort. It's not just talent in front of the screen and a producer and a director behind in the booth um, or in the truck, depending on how big of an event it is. Like coming up um, at Keeneland, we will have a crew on site in a truck producing that show for two weeks. Um, we had the same thing opening week at Del Mar and for Pacific Classic Weekend. Um, so there, there's a lot of stuff that goes into producing the shows and a lot of information that gets passed around. And there are times that it gets to be it does get to be a lot. And everyone's like, wait a minute, slow down. How much of what has to go where when? <laughs> Happens in the social media truck too. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> we have a truck at Breeders' Cup and not a truck, but like our, our own office. And uh, yeah, it's people only see generally what's on the surface, but what you don't see yeah. is what's going on behind All the scenes. All the moving pieces behind it. Exactly. Well, I've been very thankful to be able to understand those pieces and see how it all works so that I can be more understanding and empathetic if something were to go wrong or not necessarily wrong, but um, if plans have to change, I know why. I can understand why, like maybe a different race delayed, and, but it needs to go live. And so my interview can't air. I'm like, that's fine. That's a contractually obligated thing that we have to do. I get that. That's okay. Mm -hmm. And so there are certain things like that where I'm like, priorities and it's allowed me to be able to better understand that production i think this is just to i don't know wind down everything i think that's a really good point to make that anybody out there who watches racing should have that level of insight of all the pieces that go into it behind the scenes so if you ever do see a mistake you know it kind of humanizes it and wow. you know don't be a keyboard warrior to complain about things <laughs> because there's so much work that goes into all of these shows and there are dozens of people behind the scenes to make it all possible and i have a tremendous amount of respect for you know on air people camera people everything that goes into that production that um, yeah if something goes wrong you know you guys have to roll with it. And um, I, so thank you all for what you do and, you know, for putting on a good show and delivering that to the public so they get, you know, to consume our sport and hopefully fall in love with it. I'll set it. Yeah, I mean, the more people we can get watching, the better. Like, we want the most amount of support possible. Like, we've got some of the best racing coming up here in the next month and a half leading up to Breeders' Cup. Um, Keeneland's going to be a ton of fun. Breeders' Cup's going to be more fun. We're back out here in California. It'll be my first Breeders' Cup ever, so I'm super excited. Oh, wow. um, so a lot, of, a lot of good stuff about to happen. Well, thank you so much, Delena, for joining us. It was yes. great to meet you. Thanks for hopping on. I'm sure. Yes. Yes. So, oh, my goodness. So excited for this one. We got to talk Women's Summit. We got to talk Off the Track Thoroughbreds. We got to talk 
production, social media, broadcast. I love it. All of it. Told <laughs> All you, of it. I wear a lot of different hats. I'm used to doing a lot of different things. Well, good luck at Breeders' Cup, and hopefully we'll be able to have you on again in the future, you know, to share a follow-up episode and yeah, the, you know, the progress of your career. For sure. Thank you so much, Delena. Of course, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Don't forget to follow Amplify Horse Racing on Facebook, Twitter, slash X. We're in that transition phase. Instagram. You can see the video version of this podcast on our YouTube channel, or you can listen to it on your favorite podcasting platform. If you have an idea for an episode that you'd like to share with us, don't hesitate to reach out to info at amplifyhorseracing.org. I actually ran into somebody at Santa Anita who has tuned in for the podcast before, so the fans are out there, and we will catch you next time.